Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. This is a podcast about the North American fur trade from roughly the late 1500s to the 1840s. Our listener base is rapidly expanding, and I want to tell you how much I appreciate all of you listening. In fact, I'm quite proud. We recently gained a number of homeschooling students who use this podcast as their history lesson. So welcome to all you young historians just joining us. In honor of these youngest listeners, I thought I'd do something a little different today. We're going to talk about what it was like to be a kid during this time period. But how you lived as a kid would depend on a lot of factors, like what your father did, where they lived, what nationality and religion they were. Kids in the colonies in the East would have lived very differently than kids being raised in the Rocky Mountains in a fur company. And they would have lived very differently from the kids being raised at the edge of the wilderness in the ever-growing new country. In fact, the kids of trappers and traders in Canada would have lived differently than the kids of trappers and traders in America, who would have lived very differently from the kids of trappers and traders in the Mexico Territory. Partly, this is because of the differences in how your parents were raised. Puritan families saw a lot more importance in things like learning to read. So you can study scriptures, while frontier families put a lot more emphasis on knowing how to hunt, fish, and farm so you can survive the long frontier winters. So we need to take a look at each of these regions separately to get an idea of what it was like to grow up in this time period. So let's start in the east, in the colonies, and let's start where kids do as infants. Infants, both boys and girls, wore little dresses or petticoats. This is because babies needed to be potty trained, or housebroken, depending on who you ask, and it's easier to change diapers when you can just slide the dress up. On the subject of diapers, in the east at least, they were often made of linen or muslin material that was imported from Europe. Once the baby messed up the diaper, it would be scraped and rinsed out and then set aside until laundry day. And one can only imagine what that smelled like after a few days. Now on laundry day, this big stack of stinky diapers would be scrubbed on a washboard, rinsed again, and hung to dry on a clothesline. For frontier families who didn't have muslin, or infants at the fur trapper's ever-moving camp, diaper material was usually moss, wool, or a shredded plant fiber of some kind suspended from a cloth sling and tied to the baby's waist. In the very early 1800s, diapers were only changed once every few days, which is totally gross. Cleaning them was a pain in the neck so they got as much mileage out of one diaper as they could. Towards the end of the 1800s, moms figured out that cutting that linen material into large squares and folding them in half, like a kerchief almost, and quilting them meant they were more absorbent. It also meant they could be secured with a pin that made it easier to change them and ultimately made it a little more hygienic. They also figured out they could boil them to clean them, rather than bust their knuckles on the washboard. And I'd like to point out something here. Many frontier families only had one large kettle which they cooked in, as well as did their laundry. 
So you'd be boiling your nasty diapers in the morning and cooking your stew in that same kettle that night. Just saying. Sometimes these diapers were covered by a tight-fitting diaper cover that contained solids better. And this is actually how it stayed, right up until the 1940s when plastic diaper covers were invented. And while paper disposable diapers were invented in 1942, and they could be thrown away when they were soiled, they leaked like, well, paper. It wasn't until 1948 that Johnson & Johnson made the first waterproof diapers. As the baby began to learn to walk, leading strings were attached to the shoulders of the dresses so that the baby could be steered around or helped up if need be, or pulled back from danger. Once the toddler was capable of walking around well enough on its own, those leading strings came off, but the child would still be wearing a dress, at least until they were a little older. Now, some sources state that they were five or six when they began to wear the same clothing as their parents, boys in pants, girls in regular dresses, while others say that boys as old as eight were still wearing the dresses. The average family consisted of between five and eight kids. Generally, a mother produced a child every two years, starting in her early 20s, and continuing having babies until she was around 40. So some families had 10 or more children. Now, it also depended on what religion your family was. My grandmother was raised Catholic, and she was one of 21 children, with only two sets of those being twins. And she wasn't born until 1922. So it's not uncommon for certain religions to have more children than others. It was also commonplace that the girls of the family helped to deliver the newest babies into the family, especially on the frontier and in the wilderness. And while mothers did often have a lot of babies, this was a time before vaccines, modern medicines, and safety locks on cabinets. So sadly, injuries and illnesses could take that number of children in your family down terribly quickly. Some of the ailments that took my grandmother's siblings were drinking bad water after storm water had corrupted their well, a drowning, a snake bite, and the flu. Of your surviving brothers and sisters, you would have had to share everything. If you were the oldest, your clothes were passed down to the next sibling when you outgrew them. If you were the youngest, your clothes probably had gone through all of your older siblings and were pretty worn thin by the time they got to you. And you probably slept in the same bed as at least a few of your older brothers and sisters for the majority of your childhood. On the subject of clothing, any parent today bemoans how quickly kids go through shoes. We buy a $50 pair of sneakers and the kid has outgrown them within three months. So back in this day, kids ran around barefoot for the most part. Even in poorer parts of the US, right up until the 1950s, this was still the case. You likely had one pair of shoes that was reserved for going to church functions, but more than likely you grew up mostly barefoot. This would have been different on the frontier, where all manners of creatures would likely bite and kill you, so moccasins would have been worn on most people, even children. Now, what your house looked like would depend on where your family was from. If they had recently immigrated into the colonies, they might build a home that resembles the one they had just left. A German family would live in a German-style house, a Dutch family would live in a Dutch-style house, and so on. 
running water was not a thing in any of these houses. Even being on the forefront of technology, New York City didn't install their first underground water pipelines until 1830. So you as a kid would have to go fetch water from a well, no matter what place you lived in. There were also no indoor bathrooms. While most people on the frontier just went out to squat in the bushes, they eventually figured out how to build outhouses. People who lived in towns usually had chamber pots to pee and poop in. And it was most likely your job as a kid to empty that nasty thing. There was no such thing as a living room in your house. Though in the East, during the mid-century, parlors and sitting rooms started being built in the finer homes. But mostly everything in the house happened in the kitchen. This is where the hearth was, so it's where the heat was. The bedrooms wouldn't have been heated, even in frigid prairie winters. Now, the kitchen table was the center of your world. It's where you worked on your school homework, and where your parents lectured you on the important things in life. It's where the religious family gathered to read the scriptures and pray. It's where you snapped your green beans and plucked your chickens and prepared your meal and then ate your dinner together. It's where you talked about your day with your family and where the family came together to make important decisions. And it's where you would prepare the bodies of the family members who had passed away, where you would welcome new babies into the family and where you spent the majority of your indoor time. There was likely a bedroom for the parents and one or two for the children to share. Bunk beds did exist. Usually they were constructed of rope that held up a stuffed mattress. You probably shared that bed with at least a few of your siblings. Now, as your family grows larger and the neighborhood gets more congested, your parents might decide they're going to pull up stakes and head west to a nice little farmstead out in the wilderness. There is no such thing as moving trucks in this day. The only way to get there was by packing up everything you own, loading it all into the family wagon, maybe two, tying the family milk cow to the back and the horses to the front. And while that sounds really dramatic, you really didn't own much. This was before the era where we had dressers to store 15 t-shirts and 12 pairs of blue jeans and 9 pairs of shoes. You probably only had two sets of clothing to wear every day and likely one nice outfit for a special event in church. You didn't have all the other stuff, like electronics and wall posters and shelves full of books or totes full of toys. But you did have a wagon load of brothers and sisters who also had stuff to move. So packing everything into a single wagon was definitely tight. Things that were hard to make were often put in the wagon with the families as they traveled west. For example, a spinning wheel, which nearly every frontier family owned, has a big wheel that's difficult to make. But the rest of it is just straight boards that can be made on the frontier. So the wheel part of the spinning wheel would be put in the wagon, while the other parts were often left behind at the old house. And in some resources, we're told that nails were scarce and very expensive. And people would actually burn down their old homes, and once the ashes cooled, the whole family would pick through the ashes to reclaim the nails. Of course, you couldn't do this in a town where you could potentially burn all of your neighbor's wooden houses down, but it wasn't uncommon for a family to destroy or recycle parts of their home to take with them. 
Okay, so you've taken all the most important things that your family will need in your new home. The wagons are loaded. The animals are all tethered together next to the wagon. The family is anxious and eager for this crazy road trip. Even the family dog looks excited. Are you ready? Okay, off you go. If you're old enough, like seven or eight-ish, you might be the driver of one of those wagons. Or if you're younger, you might be walking next to the wagon, herding the family's sheep alongside while your youngest siblings are riding in the wagon. But don't grumble too loudly about them getting to ride while you have to walk. These wagons have no shock absorbers, and a few hours of bouncing along on those hard wooden seats would leave your backside burning for days. Plus, imagine that your family today had to take everything in your house and stuff it into a space the size of your bathroom. There wouldn't be much room to move around if you had to ride jammed in between all that stuff. So being outside the wagon in the fresh air and the sunshine wasn't a bad thing. The downside was that the parents didn't just move to the next street over or even the next town over. They moved hundreds of miles and several states away. And these journeys could take a family months and months and months to get to their new home. You'd have to cross treeless landscapes in the blazing sun, get your wagons and livestock across swollen rivers and mosquito-filled swamps, and, oh yeah, refrigerators weren't invented yet, so you're eating lean while you're on the road. Each night, after a whole day's worth of sore backsides, Dad and the older kids would go hunting or fishing for dinner. And at night, if the weather was bad, the parents would often partially unload the covered wagon to pile all their kids inside. Most times there still wasn't enough room, and some of the kids had to sleep outside under the wagon. Sometimes if the weather was nice, though, the whole family would sleep outside under the stars. I said about the older kids going hunting, so here's a quick side note about kids of this day and firearms. Today, there are laws that restrict how old a kid has to be to go hunting, and most states do require some sort of hunting safety education. And even today, while the laws do vary from one state to another, here in Pennsylvania, a child as young as seven can go squirrel hunting as long as a responsible adult is with them. Now, I have a friend who grew up in Arkansas in the 70s, and he told me that he used to take his shotgun and go hunting by himself at the age of six. Not legally, of course, but in rural Arkansas in the 1970s, it was more of an anything-goes attitude. And that's kind of how it was back in the frontier days. Anything goes. But back in the frontier days, before modern hunting laws and gun safety courses and the much, much safer guns that we have today, as long as a child could safely operate the firearm, they were taught how to use it. And those kids used axes to split firewood as soon as they could lift it up. They carried knives and tomahawks and were very skilled in using them even as young as five and six years old. But safety awareness wasn't what it is now, and kids most definitely were injured using those firearms and blades. Okay, so back to your family road trip from Hades. Months have gone by. You're tired. You're sore. You're probably sunburnt to a crisp. But finally, you get to your new land. Chances are really good that the farmstead is just empty land with no house. 
So your dad, with the help of the oldest boys, would have to build that house from the ground up. That meant felling the trees, hauling them around, stacking them into the shape of a house, and then planking and planing a lot of logs to finish it. But once your house is finished, there's a boatload of rocks that need to be hauled in to build the well, which needs to be dug by hand. And when you're done with that, the horses and cows and sheep will need a barn to live in. The clothesline needs to be erected, which means making the rope that will be strung in it. The girls would likely be put to work twining that rope while the house was being built. If it's still early in the year, there's ground to till and seeds to plant and water to haul so you can have your garden packed away before the winter winds come. You see where I'm going with this? Setting up a new home was really hard work, and the whole family would have been involved from the youngest child to the oldest. Ask any kid today who lives on a farm or a homestead. There are always chores needing to be done. Today in most houses, we have running water and electricity, but some homesteads today still do things the old way, particularly if you live off grid. Back then, water had to be hauled into the house. Farm animals needed to be fed and tended to. Stalls and barns needed cleaned. Stinky diapers and clothes needed washed and hung to dry. And little brothers and sisters needed to be kept out of harm's way. Soil needed tilled, weeds pulled, crops watered, dishes washed, mattresses taken out and re-stuffed every month, and rugs taken outside to beat out the dirt and the bugs. Girls also would have had to do the cooking, the cleaning, the spinning, the churning, the grinding, and the daily baking right next to their mothers. Boys would have been hunting down or fishing up dinner, hauling firewood and protecting livestock right next to their fathers. Even toddlers can carry firewood and toss out chicken feed. But if you lived back east in a town or a city, there probably weren't as many chores to do. You likely didn't have large farm animals to tend to, or stalls to clean, except maybe for one cow and a horse or two. You probably would have found yourself either bored or underfoot at a pretty early age. And your parents would have had a solution for that. If your father had a trade, like, say, blacksmithing, you'd have spent time learning his trade. Or if your father was an educated man, like an attorney, you'd have spent your free time reading the books in his library. But it's also very possible that even as young as 9 or 10 years old, you'd have a job of your own. Apprenticeships started as early as 5 or 6, meaning you begin learning a trade by acting as a helper for somebody in their shop. Generally, you did the, the gopher jobs, where you go for this tool or you deliver that customer's order. And there was always cleaning and finishing work to do. But at the end of your apprenticeship, you'd be qualified to work in that field on your own. There were some benefits to parents sending their kids to work, like bringing in extra money to buy groceries and clothes. Not to mention mom had a quieter house while they were all out working. Sometimes this apprenticeship was a way of keeping the peace between siblings who fought a lot, or keeping rowdy children out of trouble. Kit Carson's parents put him in an apprenticeship because he kept picking fights with his stepdad. But for employers, there were also benefits to hiring kids. 
They might not be as physically strong as grown-ups, but they had a lot of energy. And in some cases, their small size was a benefit. And this is why children worked in places like coal mines, where they could crawl into tight spaces that a grown-up couldn't fit. This led to a very, very big problems for children. Boys and girls as young as seven or eight would spend many hours a day hunkered over pulling coal sledges by a rope around their waist. Spending all day crab walking on your hands and feet, pulling a lot of weight through small tunnels, caused their spines to grow incorrectly and it stunted their growth. They also suffered or even died when tunnels caved in on them or heavy carts rolled back over them. Remember, this is a time before modern child labor laws. A 10-year-old kid could work as much as 14 to 16 hours a day in a deep, dark coal mine with little sunlight and fresh air, breathing all sorts of nasty coal dust into their lungs. Even most grown-ups today don't have work hours like that. Coal dust in the lungs causes diseases, which back then they lumped into a term known as black lung, but today we know them to be ailments like COPD, lung cancers, pulmonary fibrosis, and so many other diseases. It goes without saying, but the life expectancy of kids in mines was rather short. Back east, some kids worked in fiber mills making cloth or sewing that cloth into clothes. Smaller hands fit well into the big industrial machinery like to thread looms where a big grown-up hand might struggle to get in that small space. But factory working kids had their own struggles. Sticking your fingers in moving machinery is dangerous. A moving part of that machine could lop off a hand or mangle fingers. And the typical workday was still between 10 and 16 hours with one lunch or maybe a dinner break. They usually work six days a week. Eventually, people grew concerned about the health and well-being of children in these working conditions. And laws were passed that not only limited how long a kid could work each day, but also what kind of jobs they could do. It's because of these kinds of horrible conditions and resulting laws that kids today have to have working papers and they're required to take mandatory breaks at set times. It's also why kids can't work after certain hours at night. And while these regulations today are sometimes really inconvenient to the older kids trying to save for their first car, it's because of laws like this that you kids get to stay healthy and you aren't deformed or die some horrible death in a dark mine. Frontier kids didn't have factories to work in, at least not until a large town grew up around your homestead. But those kids didn't have it any easier. Let's say the summer sun comes up at 6.30 in the morning on your St. Louis, Missouri homestead. You, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, you've all had your breakfast long before the sun came up. And you're headed to the field as the sun rises. Today, you're going to gather in a crop of hay. The sun sets here about 7.30 in the evening. That's 13 hours of threshing prickly hay and sweating under a baking hot sun on a 90 degree day. This is brutal even with a few breaks throughout the day. Now there's another particular section of the frontier that was unique for kids and you don't think about it too often. Let's say your dad was a soldier. That meant you probably grew up at one of the forts. 
And while your day wasn't all that different from any other frontier living kid, you would likely have also been learning skills that would someday pay off when you join the military yourself. This might include learning things like orienteering by the stars, or freight logistics to manage supply lines, or even how to make weapons and armaments. Most forts also raise their own vegetable gardens and livestock to keep the soldiers supplied with healthy meat and vegetables. So you would have also had all the normal frontier chores to do as well. Now, if your dad was a trapper, life would have looked very different. Most of the children of the trappers had a father who was white, or at least partially white, and a mother who was at least partially indigenous. I encourage you to go to FursonFrontiers.com and listen to the Métis, M-E-T-I-S, episode to, for more information about these children of two races. Kids to these parents would have been living in both worlds. They'd have learned things like how to break down and move their camps, how to set traps, how to skin animals, and so on and so on, from their fathers. The kids of the voyagers would have learned how to read the water, how to handle a canoe, how to build and repair that canoe, and how to porridge without giving yourself a hernia. Now, if your dad was a clerk or in some other educated position, he'd have taught you how to handle the logistics of supplying trappers in the field, how to calculate profits and paychecks, and even how to manage people. But from their indigenous mothers, they would have also learned how to read the land, where to find water, what plants they can survive on, and so on. They would have learned how to hunt, how to plan for winter survival, and how to read changing weather patterns from their native relatives. These kids would also have been bilingual, not only learning French, English, Dutch, or German from their dads, but also their mother's native tongue. And since many tribes' languages are similar to the others in the same area, you might be able to speak several native languages. So this might help you understand why Métis children so often grew up to be interpreters, because they spoke all of the languages involved. Kids in the East and on the frontiers would certainly have been more connected to nature than most kids are today. But these mountain kids would have been remarkably in tune to even the slightest changes in nature. You could have been able to predict weather just from the clues that nature gave you. Even at five or six, you'd have been able to trap or hunt an animal, process the hide, prepare and store the meat, and create clothing out of that hide all by yourself at five or six years old. Families were generally smaller in the wilderness with only two or three surviving children to a family. Partly this is because of the fact that everything in the wilderness wants to kill you. But it also stems from the fact that fewer mothers survive childbirth in the wilderness. We know that Jim Bridger lost three wives in childbirth. They didn't always have close neighbors to help deliver those babies. And more often than not, a native woman would drop off the side of the trail, deliver her baby in the bushes, and then catch up with the rest of the party when it was all over. Also, some tribes had taboos about having babies too close together. So native mothers often knew what plants to use to control their pregnancies. And they tended to space their children out further. So you would not have had to share your one-room home of spruce saplings and animal hides 
with as many brothers and sisters. In the east, on the frontier, and in the wilderness, these kids grew up in nature. There were no video games to keep them inside on sunny days, and there was always some sort of work to do. Yes, the work was hard, but they were out in nature, so it wasn't so bad. They still got to be kids. Sometimes, however, tragedy forced kids to grow up way too early and to go to work at a young age, often to support their younger brothers and sisters. Let's say you are 12 or 13 years old. You think modern life now is tough, having to go to school and do chores and sports and church and whatever hobbies you have. Imagine how tough it would have been to get up before sunrise, work like a mule all day long, and then go home after dark, just so you can earn enough money to feed your four or five little brothers and sisters. Oh, and you're still trying to deal with the loss of your parents. Your fun childhood would be over way too early. There are a few examples from the Trapper's own journals of kids getting jobs in the fur trade at a very early age. When his parents passed away at the age of 13, the famous Jim Bridger bought a ferry barge and pulled it around St. Louis, transporting people's fur bundles and goods. He used the money he made to support his orphan sisters. And eventually, he went on to become one of the greatest fur trappers in history. Trapper George Ebert started a seven-year apprenticeship with a machinist at the age of six. And after more than six years and nine months at the job, with less than three months to go before he was certified, he ran off at the age of 13 to marry an older woman. His mother was furious, and she refused to come to the wedding. So he just scrapped the whole idea and moseyed off into the wilderness with his friend Milton Sublette. Milton was headed out to the Rocky Mountains to meet up with his older brother William, who worked for Ashley's Hundred. At the age of 14, George Ebert started his career as a trapper. Kit Carson was eight when his father unexpectedly died in 1818. A tree limb fell on his dad, killing him instantly. And the, the family was terribly poor. And for the next four years, Kit watched his mother struggle to raise him and his 14 older siblings. His mother remarried a man with several children of his own, making the family even larger. But Kit didn't like his stepfather, and they started arguing all of the time. Eventually, his stepfather put Kit into an apprenticeship with a saddle maker. And Kit did okay for a while. But he came to realize that being a saddler wasn't for him. So at the age of 17, he jumped into a caravan of fur trappers going west on the Santa Fe Trail and stayed on as a caretaker for their horses before starting his own very lucrative trapping career. Thomas Tobin was born in 1823 in St. Louis, Missouri to an Irish immigrant and a Native American woman. His mother had been married before, and she brought with her an 11-year-old son into the family. That 11-year-old would someday become the famous trapper and Indian fighter Charles Autobies. One day in 1837, Charles returned home for a visit, and his little brother Thomas was just falling all over himself stupid in awe of his big brother. So when Charles left to return to the wilderness, Thomas, just 14 years old, went with him. He became a trapper and a scout for Bent's Ford. 
Let's take a second to talk about getting grounded. Parents were extremely tough on their kids back in this day. You, as their child, had to act like a decent human being, or they would be judged by other parents and by God. Parents knew that most kids learn by making mistakes, but sometimes mistakes can be dangerous. So parents must step in and teach their children a lesson before they do something stupid that could hurt themselves. They loved their kids and they wanted them to grow up safely and not act like a jerk. Generally, how you were reprimanded depended on how your parents were raised. In many native cultures, children behaving badly were just ignored. But in some tribes, for example in the Crow Nation, it would be your uncles that kept you on the straight and narrow path. In some white communities, particularly if they were very religious, punishment might include the scriptures or manual labor. And if whatever you did was bad enough, there was probably a spanking involved. Parents in this day didn't think twice about backhanding or swatting their kids. And sometimes a spanking involved a, a wooden spoon, a butter churning paddle, or a willow switch, which stung something fierce. It was worse when they made you go out and cut your own switch to beat you with. The anticipation of that was brutal. But before you young sprouts think that this form of punishment disappeared with the fur trade, it didn't. I was born in the late 60s, and our house had a paddle that my dad built especially for my little brother. Remember that the next time you do something stupid and you're angry that your folks grounded you and took away your video games, at least they're not making you go cut your own switch. Look, I know I've painted a pretty bleak picture of childhood for you. It wasn't an easy life, but it wasn't all toil and hard work either. They would get the chance to go gigging frogs or swimming in the local water hole. They'd lay on their backs in the tall grass and try to find pictures of animals in the big white puffy clouds. In the winter, they had more free time because there were no crops to tend to. Sledding and snowball fights were a fun thing to do. In the East, particularly in Dutch populations, ice skating was a great winter sport. There were other ways to burn some energy on pleasant summer days, like foot races, playing tag, leapfrog, and games involving something sort of like a soccer ball. The ball would have likely been a muslin or leather bag stuffed with fabric scraps and tree bark. They also played pranks on each other, like boys sticking a live frog down the back of a girl's dress, or girls ganging up and trying to catch the boys to kiss them and give them cooties. Children spent a lot of time running around in the woods, building forts, playing house, and they had toys and games to play with. For example, there was a game called Hoop Trundling. You had a large wood or metal hoop, uh, a little bit smaller than a hula hoop, and a stick or a hook. The object of the game was to roll the hoop and keep it rolling for as long as you can by tapping it with the stick. Sometimes, though, they would toss the hoops at each other and try and catch them with the stick. They had a toy that many of you rendezvous kids are familiar with called the cup and ball. It's a small wooden cup on a handle that has tied to it a ball on the end of a string. The object of the game is to swing the ball up and try to catch it in the cup. They also had a toy called a whirly gig. This was a star shape or a round disc that was weighted 
and a string was threaded through holes in the center of it. To use this toy, you would hold the string on either side of the disc, and you'd spin it around, winding that string tighter and tighter each time it went around. When it was super tight, you'd pull outwards on the two sides, and the disc would spin back towards you. If you move your hands in an accordion-like motion, you can keep that disc spinning for a long time. You kids can actually make this out of stuff laying around your house. I'll give you a link on the website with instructions. Kids in this era also played Cat's Cradle. This is a simple game with a piece of string that two kids can play by twisting and twining the string around their fingers, creating all sorts of shapes. They also had marbles, small toy horses, and deer that they could pull around. Kites, drums, wooden flutes, tin whistles. Wealthier kids had hobby horses, doll houses, and toy soldiers. But sometimes kids had to make do with whatever was lying around. A bunch of animal knuckle bones or some oval pebbles could be turned into a wager game, like kind of like dice. Sticks and twigs could be used to build miniature log cabins and doll houses. They had a game similar to bowling that the Dutch brought over when they settled in New York City. They called it Nine Pins. From the English, they had yard games, like croquet. And both boys and girls played with dolls. Sometimes the dolls were created from whatever scraps of fabric your mother had lying around. Some were created from corn husks or dried vegetation from the field. And a creative child could even turn a spoon into a doll. Board games did exist back then, like checkers, chess, one of the oldest games in the world called Goose. Goose is a game where a circular path is drawn on a piece of leather or fabric. The object of this dice-based game is to get your goose, your game piece, or little stone or piece of bone, to the pond at the end of the path before the others do. Kids from Scandinavian parents likely had Nefetoffel, which is a strategy board game like chess. Sometimes it's called Viking chess. While Scottish and Irish kids likely had something similar to it, called Ardri. If you were a Métis kid with a white father who had connections back east, you could have had all of those and the toys that Native American kids played with. Native children had a similar game to Cat's Cradle that was played as a way of introducing Native girls to the skill of weaving. They had small looms, dolls, carved bone toys, Boys and girls both had a game similar to the cup and ball, except that it was a small hoop on a string, and you held a wooden stick in your hand. And as the hoop swung up, the child would thrust the stick through the hoop. This game helped hone their hunting skills by improving their eye-hand coordination. Native children had a toy similar to the whirly gig that they called a buzzer. It was a piece of bone or wood or pottery with two holes in it, and you'd swing it around just like the whirly gig. But extra holes placed around the center part would create a buzzing or a whistling sound when it spun. There were games that taught hunting skills, like the hoop and darts. A large hoop would be sectioned off with a simple weaving, and kids would have to get their darts through the different sections of the hoop. Or the game of stickball. This sport goes by different names depending on the tribe, but the principle of the game is usually the same. You have a stick, kind of like the shape of a highlight or a lacrosse stick, with a net woven over the looped end. 
the object is to pass a leather ball from one team member to another to another and toss it at a goalpost, all the while avoiding letting the opposite team score. The game is extremely aggressive and it's action-packed and it's so enjoyable to watch. Kids would have grown up watching their dads and their uncles play this, but the adults would have coached them in how to play as well. For the grown-ups, it gave them social bonding time. It kept them in shape. And it was a matter of pride for the winning team. And at one point, stickball helped them win in warfare. You see, the Ottawa tribe had been trying for a while to gain access to Fort Mackinac during the year of 1763. So <laughs> they started this really crazy stickball game, and they were out in front of the fort whooping it up. And while these soldiers were actually enjoying themselves watching this game, the rest of the warriors snuck into the fort behind them. Most of these kids had a bow and a quiver full of arrows from a young age, and they would sharpen their shooting skills with archery competitions. They also carried knives and tomahawks as young children. So hawk throwing and knife throwing was not only for fun, but it prepared them to become warriors when they got older. Many of the tribe's adult warriors had a, a rite of passage they participated in called Counting Coup. It was a competition where they would attempt certain feats of skill. One of those feats was touching an enemy and getting away without killing him. Another feat was to steal the man's horse. Native kids would have heard these stories of successful warriors completing these trials, and they would have pretended they were great warriors counting coup. For anyone who has ever seen Kevin Costner's movie Dances with Wolves, and kids, if you haven't watched this, I strongly suggest you do. The scene with the three Lakota boys that were trying to steal Cisco, that super smart horse, the one named Otter falls and breaks his arm. That would be a great example of how kids might practice counting coup. They were trying to steal his horse. Just like today, Games and toys were meant to teach children, both on the frontiers and back east, the skills they would need as grown-ups. Girls were taught the skills they would need to be good mothers, like spinning, weaving, sewing, embroidery, and how to take care of babies. Boys were taught skills they would need to be good fathers and providers, like farming, hunting, butchering, sharpening knives, feeding their families. But there was something else they would need to know if they wanted to get ahead in this day and age, how to read. It is a myth that education was not very important at this time. On the contrary, it was very important. Most of the trappers could read and write, and some even held college degrees in education and accounting. So you know their math skills were good. And we know from journal entries that the older, more seasoned veteran trappers were teaching the young recruits how to read and write. Trapper Joe Meek was one of those who learned how to read sitting at a rendezvous campfire. In some cases, white trappers wanted their kids to be educated back east. Those kids would have been shipped off to a relative, most likely, to get their education. Others would have been sent to a boarding or a finishing school. That meant you lived in a dormitory or a barracks far away from your family while you were getting your education. Some of the most famous mountain men sent their mixed-race children west to a woman named Narcissa Prentice Whitman. She ran a boarding school in Walla Walla, Washington, and she would take these children into her family, 
and teach them how to read and write, how to manage a home, how to manage a business. But many fathers who were literate taught the children themselves. Keep in mind, these kids in the wilderness didn't go to a physical brick-and-mortar school. They'd have done their book learning in the evenings by lantern light after they've already worked a full day with their parents. Wilderness kids would have also been taught the stories of the indigenous tribes. Before people could read and write, this is how they kept their history, through songs and dances and stories. Kids who did go to a brick-and-mortar school would have had to spend several hours a day sitting on hard wooden seats writing out their lessons on a piece of slate. Paper was expensive and very hard to come by, so students would write on a kind of small chalkboard and then wipe it off to do the next lesson. There was usually a wood stove lit in the winter to keep the worst of the cold weather out, but students and teachers still shivered in the winter from drafty windows. How about all those books today that you kids have to carry from one class to the next? There weren't a whole lot of books back in this day. They had small books called primers that students would share between a few kids. And since you had all your classes in the same room by the same teacher, you didn't have to lug them anywhere. But if you did happen to mess up, some teachers would stand you in the corner with a dunce cap on. This is like a big pointy gnome hat and other kids were encouraged to look at the big dummy standing in the corner and laugh at him. Because ridicule was one way of keeping kids in line. Or so they thought. Today we call that bullying, but there was a point in time when that was what they used for discipline. Subjects that you learned in your one-room schoolhouse would have included math, reading and writing, probably some music lessons in the form of hymns if you lived in a religious community, and maybe even a little bit of history. But hands down, the best time of the day was recess. This gave the kids a chance to go out and stretch their cramped legs and get off those hard seats for a bit. And it gave the teachers a chance to have some peace and quiet. Being a teacher back in this day wasn't an easy job. In the earliest days of the fur trade era, teachers back east would often open their homes to students, teaching many different age groups at the same time. Most large towns realized the importance of education and built one-room schoolhouses for the teachers to use. Here in Pennsylvania, William Penn provided schools as early as the 1680s, and the first college was built in 1755. Subjects for children in the East would have included reading, writing, arithmetic, history, possibly Latin if you lived in a largely Catholic town. And as you traveled farther west on the continent, into the wild frontiers, schools weren't as close to the homes as they are in the East. Your parents might have to give you a wagon ride to the nearest school, or you would have to walk a really long way to get there. There was no such thing as buses in this day, but sometimes parents would take turns picking up a whole bunch of kids on the way, kind of like a rideshare. Now, while education was important to educated people, many of these parents weren't educated, and they did not see the importance of it yet. Why would their kid need to learn to read anyways? They had gone their whole lives without it, and they were fine. At least, until a letter is delivered and they have no idea what it says. Suddenly, people can see how it would be kind of handy to have a kid that can read. So most parents, particularly those on farmsteads, 
would send their kids to be educated for part of the year. As long as it didn't interfere with planting crops or watering crops or the harvest season or the calving season or the culling season when the herds need to be slaughtered uh, or when the weather was really bad. You get the idea? And this meant the kids weren't getting the most out of the education system. Certain states, like Massachusetts, for example, said, okay, you know what? We're passing a law that says you must send your kids to school between the ages of 6 and 16 for a certain number of days. And in Massachusetts in 1852, for the first time, going to school became compulsory, meaning you have to do it, it's the law. You see, when my parents were kids, my grandparents depended on them to understand things in the world that they just didn't get, like those newfangled television set thingies. When I was young, my mom depended on me to help her figure out where the photos went every time she opened her email, because she just didn't get it. And even though I'm not a moron, I still depend on my children to help me with my smartphone when it freaks out. Once parents saw the benefits of their kids being smarter, each successive generation became even smarter. So, now that your kids are all experts on how you got so smart, let's look at a few things that mess up our education timeline. Remember that first compulsory school opened in Massachusetts in 1852? Decades earlier, back in the early 1800s, Decades before Massachusetts passed that first education law, the officers of the Hudson's Bay Company were thinking about creating a new settlement in Manitoba called the Red River Colony. They were the first North Americans to set money aside to build a school. And here's why. One of the reasons Hudson's Bay Company did as well as they did was because of their record keeping. This company kept detailed records of every little thing that happened in the fur trade, from the number of beaver brought in by each and every trapper at hundreds of trading posts across Canada, to the values of every toolkit and tomahawk that they handed out. It is a phenomenal amount of documentation. And they understood that in order to keep wonderfully detailed records, you have to know how to read, write, and do math. They also saw that fur trapping was a generational thing. Fathers were bringing their sons up in the business, and if they wanted successful employees, they needed to make sure that future generations were smarter. The Northwest Company had something similar, setting aside a portion of their profits every year to make sure their future clerks and officers were educated. Another thing that sets the country's education timeline off a bit are the missionaries. As the white folks moved west to hunt or trap or set up new homesteads, the missionaries were traveling west to find natives to convert to Christianity. And they often set up colonies where these newly converted natives could live with their families in peace and harmony. Those missionaries educated the children in the same basic subjects, like reading and writing, but they also taught them Latin and English and other languages. Religion history, all of these things were being taught in these communities. And two of those earliest communities, they set up right here in Pennsylvania in the 1740s. Nazareth and Bethlehem, though us Pennsylvanians pronounce it Bethlehem. Generally, as time went on, 
and Canada and America are expanding their boundaries and filling up their lands with immigrants, each generation of people became smarter. In fact, we became so concerned with being smarter that we did one of the dumbest things we have ever done as a people. One of the fundamental beliefs of these young United States, at this point in time anyways, is that all people are created equal, as long as you're a white man. Single women did have a few rights. Black people had a few rights, at least at that point in time. But married women, Asians, Native Americans had absolutely none. Efforts were being made to get everyone to conform to be that model white American. And in doing that, the government took Native children off of these reservations we had forced them onto and forced them again into white boarding schools like the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. The point of these institutions was to teach Native kids how to be white. They were taught all the same subjects that other kids were taught. But these schools tried to force them to give up their native ways and their native beliefs. These kids were punished for speaking their native language. They were punished for dressing in native clothing. And they were punished if they protested their treatment. The white government was trying to get them to conform. Let me paint this picture for you another way, my dear young listeners. Because this is one of those times where you must, must understand this history, lest you are doomed to repeat this mistake. You're just going about your business, playing in your backyard with your friends, hanging out, when a UFO lands in your yard and outsprings a bunch of little green Martians. I know, pretend they're real. They look around at these humans and think, wow, they're almost like us. Well, they're the wrong color, of course, and they're kind of dumb and smelly. And they worshipped the wrong deity. But we can fix that. So the little green men scoop up the children, and because everyone knows that children learn better than grown-ups, even the Martians know this, they take those children in their UFO to a space school that they have set up on the moon. And they teach them how to be Martians. Now, the only way to teach them, so the Martians believe, is to immerse these smelly human children in the Martian culture. Immersion means children are not allowed to speak their own language. They can't dress the way they normally do. They can't act the way they normally do. If the child messes up and tries to speak their human language, the Martians smack them with a stick until they become Martian. If they're caught doing anything human, the Martians punish them until they stop doing it. And some of the punishments are brutal, even lethal. It's a long way between the moon and where these kids' parents are living on the earth. So there's no hope of visiting your family that you miss very much. Eventually, the unhappy human children, they get tired of it and they just give up and start acting like Martians. And this is pretty much what happened with the boarding schools that the U.S. government forced Native children into. Thankfully, that program was a dismal failure. And after entirely too long, most of the children were returned. White men tried to erase the native cultures by forcing children to be white. Thankfully, these amazing and beautiful cultures were not erased from our world, and we can still appreciate them today. But some of those kids didn't get back to their families for decades. Some never made it back at all. And America wasn't the only one doing this. It was happening in Canada and all over the world. Disgusting, eh? Ugh. 
Anyways, as time went on throughout the fur trade era, parents saw the benefit of the next generation being smarter and better educated. But they also had hopes of their kids carrying on their legacy. They worked hard to build homesteads and businesses, and they wanted their children to take all that hard work and continue and invest their own time and effort into those creations. They wanted them to carry on the traditions. And like everything else, this is reflected in the rendezvous today. We know that the children will determine the future of our lifestyle. I'd like to take a minute here to mention a particular group of rendezvous people who not only carry on the tradition of being educators at the events themselves, but they give up their hard-earned vacation time so that our kids can have fun and continue to learn. They spend their personal time creating kids' events and classes, scavenger hunts and kids' highland games, and so often they pay for it out of their pockets. My kids are now in their 30s, but they still remember Miss Dittmer, the teacher at the rendezvous, who could have been out shopping on Settler's Row or kicked back at her camp with a cool adult beverage in good company, but instead she was melting in the heat at the table with her pupils. Because that, right there, that's dedication. I want to share one more thing with you young bucks. When I was a kid, there was a TV show on Wednesday nights called Little House on the Prairie. This show was based on a series of books written in the 1930s by Laura Ingalls Wilder. She was a woman born in Wisconsin in 1867 who grew up on the wild frontiers of the United States. And she talks about what her life was like. As she got older, her children convinced her to write down her life story and to tell the world what it was like to be a pioneer kid. There are this series and so many books out there on what life was like during this era. Look into them, young listeners, and explore this history for yourselves. You parents have heard the saying, the children are the future. It's true. And for you kids listening today, you're no dummies. I know you know this. As us old mountain folk retire, it's you children who will continue our legacy and carry on our traditions. It's you who will keep the history and the rendezvous alive. Thanks again for traveling along with me for this special kids episode. For more episodes about our beloved fur trade, please check out the website at fursandfrontiers.com. There's also links to great resources, people who want to do their own research. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry. Thank mm-hmm. you.